This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Monday, November 27th. Alberta's Sovereignty Act is being invoked for the first time. Coming up, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith on what drove her to take this measure. And reaction from Federal Energy Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. Plus, Ontario and Toronto strike a historic deal. Ontario's Finance Minister is standing by. And the Conservatives may be headed for their best fundraising year ever. The Power Panel is here to weigh in on that. Just moments ago, Alberta tabled a bill to invoke the Alberta Sovereignty Act. Never before used, it's meant to help Alberta reject federal laws it sees as unconstitutional or harmful to the province. In this case, Alberta is pushing back against the federal government's clean electricity regulations. For more on this, the Premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith, joins me now. Premier Smith, good to see you again. Hi, David. Your province, uh, the Alberta-Ottawa Working Group, has been working together on the draft electricity regulations. So why did you choose to use the Sovereignty Act rather than continuing further in negotiations with the federal government? Well, we've been very clear from the beginning that we wanted to align our, our various policies around our 2050 target to be carbon neutral. And they keep on resisting that on the clean electricity regs. We're making great progress on other issues, on small modular nuclear, on discussion of hydrogen, on carbon capture utilization and storage. But we had to draw a pretty firm line here. We just know that the 2035 target is not achievable. Our our own electric system operator has said that they're concerned about reliability and affordability. And we know that we need to take actions to make sure that we get more baseload power built. And in our province, that's natural gas power. And that's the the reason why we had to invoke this today. You're talking about creating a crown corporation that, if necessary, could build gas based low power or buy gas companies who are unable to comply uh, with the federal regulations and talking about giving a directive to government entities not to comply with, enforce or follow the federal regulations uh, by any means. How is it legal for a provincial government to tell people to ignore a federal law? Well, you know, the way I put it is, how is it legal for the federal government to act like the Supreme Court of Canada didn't just admonish them twice to stop overreaching into our areas of jurisdiction? In In the first case, with the Impact Assessment Act, they told them very clearly that cooperative federalism means just that. You've got to cooperate. You can't take unilateral action. And in the case of plastics, they were told that they uh, had overreached and it was also unconstitutional. And yet they keep on acting as if the Constitution doesn't matter. So our Sovereignty Act resolution today said the Constitution does matter. Provinces are given exclusive jurisdiction to develop their own electricity grids. And we intend to make sure that we're, we're doing so. And that the federal government, if they don't like it, they can take us to court. But I do believe that we're on pretty strong ground here. But you do have the authority under the Constitution to build your own electricity system. But the Supreme Court ruled in the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act that the, that the federal government, under the principle of peace, order, and good government, can regulate emissions. So you can't build an electrical system that emits to a point beyond the federal standard and, and, and threatens the rest of the country. This is what the Supreme Court ruled. I, I appreciate the IAC, the plastics ban, but those are separate issues from this particular one. 
Well, I, I disagree. I mean, if you look at that um, at that legislation or that that ruling, what they did say is it applied to the very narrow question of carbon pricing. It was not carte blanche for the federal government to use a pretext to invade provincial jurisdiction. And in fact, I would say the subsequent decisions have made it super clear that the federal government can act to regulate federal projects on federal lands and international, but they cannot use their power to invade our jurisdiction. And they continue to act as if that Supreme Court decision did not come down. And we're letting them know that we read the Constitution, we read the court decisions, and we're prepared to do what it takes to make sure that we continue to bring new baseload power on in our province. And in our province, that means natural gas. Okay, but if there's a federal law on the books, Premier, and, and you are instructing uh, people who work for your government not to comply with it, and if they follow that, you're leading them into legal jeopardy. Well, I guess, you know, I'll watch and see what happens in uh, Saskatchewan, because they're a little bit further advanced. Uh, they're taking an, an action on a different issue and indemnifying all the employees of their crown corporations. And that's not unusual. We actually have seen in, in law before that you can indemnify civil servants when they take action at the direction of their, their, uh, their, 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 the, the, the political direction. So I'm going to watch and see what they put in place. And we, if we need to, we'll, we'll put similar architecture in place as well to make sure that our employees are protected. But, but what it comes down to is the federal government needs to stop acting in a lawless way. Respect the Constitution. Respect what the court has said. Come to the table and work with us on a 2050 target because we are, uh, and I have said from the very beginning that we are committed to making major reductions in emissions, but we have to do it at a pace that technology allows for, that makes uh, sure that we have affordability and reliability. We've got to keep the lights on, and that's got to be the number one goal. No, I, I appreciate that, and I don't think anybody wants an unstable Alberta electrical system, but you, you cite the Saskatchewan example, and, and uh, you know I've seen a lot of legal theory that uh, the basic principle of paramountcy, that a lower legislature, like a provincial one, cannot rewrite how federal law is interpreted, means that what they're doing there is not going to stand the test of time. And, and it seems like you the potential exists, and I am not a lawyer, but you know the, the, the lawyers who weighed in on the Saskatchewan one suggested they could be led into legal jeopardy because it doesn't matter what you say provincially, it matters how the law is interpreted federally. So, I, I, I mean, how risky is this going to be for the people you're, you're telling not to follow federal law? With respect, David, we are not a lower level of government. We are an equal level of government. We each have sovereign areas of jurisdiction defined by Section 91 in the case of the federal powers and Section 92 in the case of the provincial powers. I'm annoyed that the federal government keeps treating us like we are a lower level of government and that they can uh, enact laws in our areas of jurisdiction with impunity. They cannot. The Supreme Court has told them they cannot. The federal court just told them that they cannot. And as a result, this is the reason why we have decided to take the action. That we're going to make sure that we get our power produced in this province where we have our constitutional jurisdiction to do so. Look, we have had instability in our grid already. The grid almost failed seven times last winter and three times over the summer. This is unusual. And it, it, what it's showing is our system's under stress. We need to bring more baseload power on. And yet because of federal interference in this area, I do not have people knocking down the door to create new natural gas plants because they're fearful of what the federal rules are going to be. And this is the reason why we have to create an environment to get, to get those investment dollars back so that we can make sure that the, the lights stay on in the winter and in the summer and to make sure that we, we, we are able to protect uh, Albertans. That's what's got to be our number one goal. Okay, f fair enough on my use of the word lower order. Uh, that was probably a clumsy characterization. But the point stands that the federal government can't relate, rewrite provincial laws any more than a provincial legislature can rewrite federal laws. And, and you talk about how you, you need baseload power. 
Why not look at other options beyond gas? For example, hydro. I've seen a, a study done in 2010. This is on the government of Alberta's website. There's 42,000 gigawatt hours per year of undeveloped hydroelectric potential in, in Alberta. That's enough for 5.8 million homes a year. Well, why is this all about natural gas when there are other options that exist within your jurisdiction? Well, I look at what's happened with Site C, and as you saw, the Site C project began as an idea in 1954, and it's taken decades and decades and decades to get to a point where they had enough buy-in to be able to do it. Plus, it's expensive. It's an 11 mega, 1,100 megawatt um, facility that is costing $15 billion. We're bringing on a 900 megawatt facility next year that costs $1.5 billion. So the money makes more sense in this province to do natural gas. We will do abatement to the best available technology and we'll work with the federal government on small modular nuclear. We, we've signed an MOU with other jurisdictions on this and we've also funded a study looking at how Sonovus might end up implementing that. But that is technology doesn't exist yet and it is not deployed yet and we don't have a regulatory environment for it yet uh, hydrogen is another great potential opportunity but again these are all types of technology that are, are still in their infancy i can't i can't guarantee that they're going to be ready by 2035 which is why we need the longer time horizon and i hope the federal government understands we're serious about this we want to work with them on carbon neutrality but carbon neutrality by 2050 these regulations, though, are still in their draft form. They're not finalized yet, and you're taking this step. I mean, has it been made emphatically clear and absolutely that there is no flexibility from the federal government? I made it emphatically clear when they were first proposing it. I said, do a carve out for Alberta, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia if they need it as well. These four provinces that are in a very different situation. There are some provinces that are already almost at net zero on their power grid, but give us a little bit more time. I made that point over and over again, and they continue to, pr to press forward with unrealistic targets. And so this is the reason why we've had to take these matters into our own hands. It takes years for the, uh, for the commission of a new site, going through the regulatory process. We, we can't afford to wait while the federal government stalls and make us go to court to try to win our constitutional authority back. We're asserting our constitutional authority, and we're going to get started on making sure that baseload power gets built. When we uh, spoke about this the first time and in a subsequent conversation I had with Rebecca Schultz, uh, one of your cabinet ministers, you raised the prospect of people going to jail if you're not in compliance uh, with these regulations in 2035. And the government has said that good faith noncompliance will not lead to incarceration. There's a quarter century of regulation under the Canadian Environment Protection Act that demonstrates noncompliance is addressed with warnings, compliance orders, and gradually larger fines. And that's why it needs to have a criminal code provision. But what you're talking about is not a good faith noncompliance. You're talking about a deliberate noncompliance by telling people no. not to comply. No, not, no, not true. I mean, when we are talking about bringing on natural gas, we're talking about bringing it on um, abated to the best available technology. The, the problem is right now the technology only allows for us to abate about 60% of emissions, which is pretty good. But it's not anywhere near what the federal government is asking for. And so that's why we believe we have to take these actions. And it's, it's not good enough for them to use their criminal law power to invade our jurisdiction and say, oh, yeah, but we don't really intend to use it. That does, that does not give comfort to our private sector CEOs. The, our private sector CEOs are very risk averse and their boards of directors will simply not allow them to take a risk that one of them is not going to end up in jail in 2035. We need this this clarity, and that's what we're providing. We're going to make sure that we have a, a market that investors can invest in, and they know that um, if there is any risk, the risk will fall to the, to the provincial government. And just as a final question, Premier, have you spoken to anyone in the federal government since you announced your intention to do this, and, and, and what was that conversation like if it happened? 
Well, I, I did tell them from the very beginning that don't go down this path because otherwise we, we will have to assert our constitutional jurisdiction. I did uh, tell them at the very beginning, uh, before we even put our working table together, that we wanted them to align around our 2050 target. When we launched our, 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 our campaign uh, across the country to try to uh, educate the rest of the country about the impact this would have on us, we thought that that would move them. Instead, they just continue to proceed as if they can tinker around the edges and continue to act like these uh, targets are achievable. They're simply not. So now they know we're serious, that we are going to defend our jurisdiction. We're going to build the baseload that we need because Albertans expect us to, to keep the lights on, and, and that's our job to do it. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, thanks for your time again today. Thank you. In Ontario, meanwhile, the provincial government is taking control of two major Toronto highways. The Gardner Expressway and the Don Valley Parkway will now fall under the province's oversight. It's part of a new deal between Toronto and Ontario to offload some financial burden on the cash-strapped city. It's the biggest historic funding ever in the history, not in Ontario, but in Canada. You know you have a good deal when both sides aren't too happy. If anyone thinks I want the DVP and the Gardner, no, I don't, but that's our responsibility. By uploading the Gardner and the DVP, the city will be able to spend billions more on affordable housing, fixing transit and building communities with all the things we love in the neighborhoods, whether it's community centers, libraries, parks. Peter Bethlen Falvey is Ontario's finance minister and he joins me now. Minister, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you, David. So Mayor Chow and Premier Ford called this a historic deal. So we've got the adjectives taken care of. I'm hoping you can help me with the math. How much of Toronto's $1.5 billion deficit will this uh, eliminate? A significant amount. I mean, this transaction, which is historic, uh, you know, as Toronto goes, Ontario goes, and frankly, Canada goes. It's the heartbeat of uh, the economy here in Ontario. Uh, is about uh, $1.2 billion of uh, operating expense over three years and capital. Uh, with uh, several billion as well, which will go a long way to, to helping plug uh, City of Toronto's uh, fiscal hole, uh, but also uh, with the help, and we've asked uh, the federal government to support as well, particularly in, in terms of refugees and asylum seekers, as well as some infrastructure like subway cars. So, you know, when multiple levels of government can come together, Toronto and the province have, uh, we can significantly put Toronto on a sustainable path for the future. Just on, on that demand of the federal government, you've put your money on the table to match whatever the, the city is putting on the table. Have you heard yet from the feds on whether or not they'll be, they'll be signing on to these specific components of this? Well, they've been at the working group, but uh, they've not been in a position to make commitments. I did talk to uh, Christy Freeland, the Minister of Finance, this morning. Um, you know, and this is uh, on the top of not only our agenda, but Mayor Chow's agenda, uh, Premier Ford's agenda, and uh, you know, again, uh, the you know this this when you talk about infrastructure, when you talk about highways, when you talk about moving people, that's economic prosperity. At the same time, taking care of people, homelessness and shelter, is also uh, significantly important as part of this. So. I'm an optimist. I think uh, the federal government will see the wisdom in supporting the New Deal for Toronto. On the Toronto-specific uh, components, Mayor Chow more or less conceded that her fight to stop the redevelopment of Ontario Place was going to be lost. So she capitulated in return for this sort of an arrangement where, where you take responsibility at the provincial level for the Gardner and the Don Valley Parkway. Why would you want to take on those particular roads and put them into your portfolio of financial liabilities and responsibilities? 
Well, first off, Ontario Place is just a small part of the overall deal, but the upload of the DVP and the Gardner uh, is really critical. Really, we have hundreds of thousands of motorists who use uh, those roads every day. Uh, they're an important part of our economic heartbeat, and we want to make sure that we can be able to fund the repairs, uh, fund the good operation, and, and make sure it doesn't get teared down, torn down, because this is a significant part of the economic prosperity. I mean, people from all over Ontario, and frankly, people who come from Ontario, uh, outside of Ontario, use the DVP and the Gardner to navigate uh, through the city. So this is a critical piece of infrastructure that adds to the economic prosperity. And again, things that we're investing in, uh, in infrastructure and, and making sure we can move people and goods, is actually really good for the economic health of not just the city and the province, but, but of all of Canada. Is that the motivation in the provincial government taking control of it, is to preserve it and stop it from being torn down? Because I know there is a, a move in certain segments of Toronto society and Toronto municipal politics to do just that. So you're trying to safeguard it here in a way uh, for, from that sort of uh, destruction and redevelopment? Well, I think, uh, I think uh, tearing down would be a travesty from an economic point of view. And uh, now it's the responsibility of the province and the people uh, of the full province to, to make sure they're in a state of good repair and that, that we can enhance uh, that infrastructure because we've got to move uh, people and goods. Um, and if you've uh, been to Toronto lately, David, you would know that getting from A to B can be a challenge sometimes. So the province is uh, making sure that we continue to invest in long-needed, outdated infrastructure, and this is just another example of that. You mentioned that the Ontario Place component of this is only a small part of the deal, um, but it's a pretty controversial one. And it seems now that this, this moves any uh, sort of vocal and loud obstruction at, at a high office level, certainly in the mayor's office, uh, out of the way uh, of this uh, redevelopment that the premier is, is so intent on. So how quickly do you think that gets done? Well, we're moving forward uh, on that. Uh, you know, it's a destination that uh, attracts uh, some people to, to Ontario, but uh, uh, with the new vision for Ontario Place uh, is going to be a significant enhancement to that. You know, uh, that, that is a piece of land that was, didn't exist uh, before Ontario Place. It's a, a largely by the, uh, the digging out of the uh, Lower Danforth extension, so it's a landfill. And uh, we're going to make sure that's an important part of, of the destination in, in, in Toronto and Ontario. But let me tell you this, it's so important that we continue to invest in um, transportation, the infrastructure, like the subways, part of this new deal in, involves uh, investing in more subways, public safety on our subways, which is so critical, more officers. Uh, we talked about uh, investing more in homelessness and shelters. You know, we've, we've got uh, a big chunk of homelessness in the provinces right here in Toronto. So we want to make sure that we're partnering and doing what's best to, to keep people healthy, but also for our economy. Just one more question on the Ontario Place component, because your government says you still plan to move the Ontario Science Centre to Ontario Place, and it's up to the city to decide what happens with the land that is the current location of the Science Centre, and you have control over the Science Centre itself. Uh, Mayor Chow mentioned a partnership between the governments to ensure the programming remains effective. What is the plan for the Science Centre? No, the plan, uh, certainly we're going to build a new science centre down, down in Ontario Place, so, so that's part of the deal today. But, but the existing science centre, uh, that's, that's land owned by the city, and uh, what the Premier said today and what we've said is we'll, we'll work with the city as they unveil their vision for, for uh, what takes place at that center, the science centre that uh, that's been there. 
you outlined the list of needs uh, that Toronto has and also the, the imperative to help Toronto because as Toronto goes, so goes Ontario, as you said. A lot of municipalities, though, uh, have their own set of issues and would love to have some sort of an arrangement with the provincial government. Uh, you know, Ottawa may want to interest you in a light rail system. That's not working very well. Uh, I mean, what do you say to other provinces who are going to be raising their hand after this and saying, me too? No, we've been working with uh, all municipalities right across the uh, the province. Uh, you know, the Ontario Community Infrastructure Fund is now over over five years is a two billion dollar fund. Uh, the uh, Ontario Municipal Partnership Fund that's another uh, two and a half billion over five years. Uh, we just announced the a few months ago the uh, Building Faster Fund, one point two billion, that cities like Ottawa and others will be able to participate in. And the homelessness prevention program, we increased that by 40%. And many, many uh, municipalities like Ottawa and beyond uh, benefited from that 40% increase. So, so we've been working with, the, uh, with municipalities right across the province. Broadband is another area where we invested over $4 billion in partnership with municipalities. So uh, there's always more to do, but we've got a good working relationship with, with all the municipalities. But what was really important today was to work with Toronto and announce this historic deal which allows not only Toronto to prosper but all of Ontario to prosper. But, but I, I appreciate those other programs exist that are broadly uh, applied but something specific like taking the Don Valley and the Gardner uh, uh, off the liability balance sheet of, of Toronto, there, would deals like that be available for other cities in Ontario who might have other assets that cost them a lot of money but really are provincial in terms of benefit and, and they might want some help there? No, like I said, we're, we're, we've been doing a whole bunch of things and we always talk about share priorities. We're putting $185 billion into our 10-year capital plan of which many municipalities uh, benefit, like our transit plan is $70 billion, of which uh, $28 billion is, is for, for subways, the rest for public uh, transit right across the province. Uh, there's $28 billion in that plan for, for highways, which benefits uh, communities right across the province. So uh, this is about uh, moving Ontario forward, getting, um, dealing with the sustainability of the City of Toronto for the long haul, but also recognizing how they are the a big part of the economic engine of Ontario. And we want to move Ontario forward from an economic prosperity point of view. We want to invest in infrastructure because that helps with uh, prosperity and productivity and lifts all boats. Ontario Finance Minister Peter Bethlenfalvy, thanks so much for your time today. Always a pleasure. There's a bill before the Senate to take the carbon tax of the farmers who feed us rather than quadrupling it, as the Prime Minister has said he will do. Will the Prime Minister stop interfering with the independence of the Senate and let the bill pass so that we can bring home affordable food? Once again, the leader of the Conservatives is demonstrating this week that he just can't tell the truth to Canadians, whether it's with regards to how they voted on the Canada-Ukraine free trade agreement, perhaps why he blamed others for his mistakes when it came to how he jumped to a conclusion for a terrorist attack. And now what he's talking about with C-234... He knows that is patently false. Some of today's back and forth in the House as the Liberals sharpen their attacks on Conservative leader Pierre Polyev. The final fundraising numbers for this year aren't in yet, but the Conservatives, well, they may be headed for their best fundraising year ever. According to Elections Canada, the Conservatives have brought in $23.3 million so far this year. That's about $13.5 million more than the federal Liberals at just $9.8 million. So, will Liberal attacks work to counter the Conservatives' fiscal and narrative advantage? We're going to bring in the power panel on that. 
Brad Levine is with Council Public Affairs. Lisa Raitt is a former Conservative Cabinet Minister, now Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking with CIBC Capital Markets. And here with me in Ottawa, Vanda Cotter is a political consultant and a former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief, now writing for The Atlantic. Happy Monday, gang. Thanks for joining me. The Economist, David. What did I say? The Atlantic. Yeah, but if you want to, if you want to give me another job, I'll take it. I'm, I'm ten uh, seconds into this, and I've been aggressive. Congratulations! And you know what? I, I deserved it. I'm uh, I'm sorry, Rob. Uh, but you know, you'd be a good Atlantic writer too. Let's say that. All right, uh, Vandana. We saw there in question period. Uh, the attack on Pierre Polyev from the Liberals since last week has been to call him essentially a liar without saying liar. Can't false statement, can't tell the truth. Do you think they have found their window, their opportunity here to turn things around? Is this the right avenue for them? I think they found a way to showcase that, yes, Mr. Polyev has done an excellent job in tapping into Canadians' frustrations. He doesn't have a plan. He hasn't shown a plan except for anything going on beyond vague platitudes like getting rid of gatekeepers. But I think what they'd be able to show is that how he is not the prime minister in waiting. That, you know, who do you actually want at the helm at the end of the day? You know, what do you want when you see, you know, the two values you face? You have someone who is consistently negative, someone who keeps talking about how everything's broken but doesn't provide anything else, someone who's constantly angry and and you know, another party that seems more hopeful, that tries to talk about affordability and climate change and reconciliation and feminist rights and et cetera. So I think at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is discredit him and show him that, you know, is this who you really want to be prime minister? And do you trust him? Yes, he can tap into your sentiment, but is it correct? And is it, is it the right thing? Lisa, uh, what, what do you make of this? They, mm. they, they're using the Ukraine free trade vote last week. They're using the, mm. the timeline on when CTV reported what CTV reported about the Rainbow Bridge last week. Stacked up against that, though, is a clear message on affordability and the hardship people are going through and a boatload of money to back that up with ads. Yeah, I mean, they're throwing everything at Pierre right now. Not unexpected, quite frankly. The party will be prepared for it. But the reality is, is that in this country, we know this very well, that governments are voted out in what the liberals are trying to do is to show that well if you vote us out you got to think about who the person is coming in and portraying him as this dark figure that is is reprehensible and everything else to go with it but i think they're too late quite frankly um the dissatisfaction of the canadian public with this government is showing up in polling right across the country and as a result they're going to have to need more than a marketing manager and a communications manager to come in to try to figure out what's broken we know it's broken canadians don't like the prime minister yeah and they have brought in uh, or they will be bringing in a new executive director of, of communications and marketing Brad, Brad what's your take on this this has been been the the shift and, and the message with some consistency since basically Wednesday Thursday of last week yeah well we'll see if it's if it's too late a um, couple quick things one um, will it have an impact on fundraising unlikely uh, it may help liberal fortunes because they're finally fighting back. I think if many commentators have been calling for months for them to, uh, for liberals to begin the process of consistently uh, attacking uh, Polyev. He's been out there with spending his own party's money, uh, you know, with nice ads about Pierre defining him. The Liberals missed an opportunity shortly after he was elected leader. You've only got a small window where you can define your opponent. Uh, your main opponent, and they failed to do that. Now they're playing catch-up. Is it too late to Lisa's point? Uh, only time will tell, and only time will tell to see how much runway uh, we have before uh, the next election. But with that kind of money that the Conservatives had, 
um, you know, they've got a m much larger war chest than either the Liberals or the Democrats have, so they can counter uh, any messaging that the new executive uh, communications director is going to craft for them in early 2024. Uh, Rob, uh, with The Economist, <laughs> uh, what, what's your take on this? You know, it's, it's absolutely true. Money is lifeblood in politics, uh, and it's coursing through the veins of the conservatives right now, and uh, the, uh, the liberals are, are like wounded hemophiliacs. You, know, the, you can see the lifeblood draining out of them. Uh, but it begs the question, why would the conservatives spend all of this money over the last six months uh, um, making Mr. Poiliev uh, look like a Cupid doll when everybody thought that he was a hammer and tongs politician, only to kind of waste some of that dough last week. Mm. Um, when he um, he went back to what is for him, uh, what seems to be for him, a reflexive and unerring um, instinct for the jugular. You know, uh, I think Lisa's right. The next election is a change election. Do you want a change? Uh, it's no longer as, did the Liberals deserve another term? Is Do you want a change? When that happens, mm. uh, and you're the leader of the opposition, all you got to do is present a reasonable image of a government in waiting. Um, and I thought Mr. Poiliev uh, was portraying that in those ads, but last week is the kind of week that m might make some people begin to pose questions. Is this the guy that we want representing us at the G7? Is this the guy who we want to console us at, at difficult, and, uh, difficult times? Um, and so I think uh, not not fatal, not by any chance, but I do think that it's the kind of week that he had last week that undoes some of the very right. good and effective advertising he had over the last six months. Yeah, and, and, and the, the liberals I spoke with, they felt that they finally <coughs> maybe had an opportunity here. They, they started, you know, attacking his honesty in their view and also talking about the far-right approaches to politics in terms of tone and tenor and substance. But then this happened today at 10.45 a.m. this morning. Timestamps on tweets are very important in the past week. This is from Ken Hardy, <laughs> who is a, a British Columbia liberal MP, and he tweeted this. It's an attempt to leak uh, Pierre Polyev to the right wing. Beyond troubling to see another mass shooting in Canada, now in Winnipeg, and we've lost so many police officers. Might it be the antisocial burn-everything-down far-right attitude we're seeing creeping in from the U.S. and the creep on the Canadian side? Pierre Polyev. Now, Vanden, I, I don't hold you accountable for this, but uh, <laughs> Mr. Hardy obviously is accountable for this. But what happened in Winnipeg with this mass shooting? Four people dead, a fifth person in critical condition, no known suspects. No, like, this is a tragedy. We don't know what's going on here. And like the criticism from the terror, what is Ken Hardy doing here linking Pierre Polyev to a mass shooting in Winnipeg? Well, he's not thinking. <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, you know, that's someone, he probably just some keystrokes, you know, in the whim. It's not right. It's actually in poor taste. I don't like that at all. But, you know, Ken Hardy is a backbench MP who doesn't really hold a role in the caucus. You know, he's not the leader. He's not the prime minister in waiting trying to present himself as such. You know, he's someone who can, you know, make mistakes as much as they are not good and they're not right. It's not reflective of the entire government or the prime minister or his cabinet minister. The liberals don't give conservatives that benefit of a doubt, though, right? When we see sort of an offside comment, you know, they, they pounce on it as part of a larger secret agenda. I mean, you know, I, I know Pierre Polyev opposes the gun legislation and various regulations the government has tried to brought in, but linking him to a mass shooting like this, while it's all still so fresh, I mean, it seems pretty dumb. Yeah, 
No, uh, there's no other word for it, to be honest. There's nothing I can defend on that. It's something that was in poor taste, and, you know, people are dead, and, you know, you can't just jump to conclusions. Um, the same way that the Liberals talked about it last week, you can't jump to conclusions. You can't stir the pot on that, and actually that makes people who feel about the far right, far left, that just further stokes that issue rather than helps unite people. So, so Lisa, it was just last week, you know, we were talking about Andrew Scheer's tweet directing people to call senators who he believed were holding up uh, Bill 234 in the Senate and, you know, uh, the, the consequences of that. Uh, Ken Hardy has at minimum sort of undermined sort of the consistent message coming from the government. What do, what do you make of a, of, a, of a tweet like that coming from a member of the uh, House of Commons? Yeah, so what I think, I'm not going to jump on Ken Hardy here, but I, what I'm going to say is I think sometimes MPs feel empowered when they are trying to understand the message or the direction that they're being given by their leaders. Now, Justin Trudeau would never put out a tweet like that at all. However, there is a lot of incendiary language being thrown around when it comes to Pierre, Pierre Polyev, sorry, and uh, other conservatives. And as a result, maybe some MPs don't get the nuance, kind of get caught up in the moment, and they think it's really free game in going after everyone and everything. And maybe that's what happened in this case. But it the stuff starts at the top. You allow it at the top. You show it at the top. Um, and it trickles down and it ends up getting absolutely, you know, maligned by the time it comes out the other end. It's unfortunate. He's going to absolutely uh, not be appreciated by his caucus on this one, that's for sure. Um, but we need to see a strong statement from, from a party leader saying that they don't condone it. Brad, uh, what's your take on that one? Yeah, these are, you know, these are distractions. Um, but I think, I think Lisa's right. I think what, what's happening here is it, it's, it's because they haven't had uh, message discipline. Uh, what is the what is the message? What are we saying on our social? What are we saying uh, in our interviews? What are we saying in our householders that go to constituents about what we're offering and about about what the risk is with our opponents uh, offering? And when you don't have that that the, the mechanisms in place to make sure that people are on the right page, from time to time people fall off uh, and make uh, boneheaded. Um, uh, messages like this, but what it what it does say though, and this, this will be interesting to see over the over the the, the days that we have before uh, the December break in the House of Commons. Does the pushback from the Liberals that many commentators have been calling for for many months now, does that provide a little bit more confidence within the front uh, benches or uh, of the of the governing benches? Does that give them a sense of pride? Do do the partisans step up and try to close the monstrous gap between the fundraising and the final quarter? It's one of the most important quarters. Um, people are going to be getting inundated over the coming uh, last four or five weeks of this calendar year before the tax breaks. Uh, uh, you know, before 2023 tax breaks right. uh, are no longer. So we'll see. This is going to be a very volatile, very, I think, um, energy-based uh, uh, five weeks because we've got, uh, we, we've, got a, we've got a governing party that's behind in the polls and the, the, the opposition that's, that's, that's got a, a $15 million uh, head start on, uh, on, the, uh, on the Liberals. So it's going to be uh, a bumpy ride over the coming five weeks. Rob, Rob just your, your quick thoughts uh, on this, yeah. but, but also on the fact that the Conservatives keep tweeting out that they voted against Ukraine Free Trade Agreement because it imposes a carbon tax on Ukraine, which Ukraine says isn't true, and the man that Stephen Harper appointed as Canada's ambassador to Ukraine also says isn't true. I mean, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of weird dialogue happening in Parliament. There, there is, but I don't think that this is uh, befuddling at all. Um, even if he dressed it up in a when did you stop beating your wife kind of question format. I, I believe Mr. Yeah. Hardy has been in trouble before. He suggested yeah. that the CPC has uh, employed uh, tactics used by Joseph Goebbels. So I think that he's, he, he's got a problem. And I think his problem, uh, as he's trying to project this onto Mr. Poiliev is a problem of projection. The projection that he's probably worrying about is a projection that shows him and other liberals losing their seats uh, if the polls keep going this way. Thanks so much to the Power Panel. Lisa Raitt, Brad Levine, Vandana Cotter, and Rob Russo. Thanks so much, gang. These are images of the 11 hostages that the Israel Defense Forces say were released by Hamas today. This was in exchange for the release of 33 Palestinian women and children held in Israeli prisons. Earlier today, Israel and Hamas reportedly agreed to a two-day extension of their truce, raising hopes that more hostages will be released. The CBC's senior international correspondent, Margaret Evans, is part of our reporting team in Israel, and she joins us now from Jerusalem. So, Margaret, what do we know about today's release of Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners, detainees? It was a pretty wobbly day, uh, David, because uh, there was a real delay in the announcement of the names uh, on that Israeli list of hostages. Uh, we're used to getting that confirmation early in the morning, news from the Prime Minister's office that uh, uh, families have been informed. That didn't happen until quite late at night, which is why uh, we in darkness now, we are confirming to you that the Israel Defense Forces have, said, have said that the Israeli hostages on that list 11 Israeli hostages are now back in Israel and en route to hospitals and medical uh, care. Uh, in, in that group, nine children, including a three-year-old twins, a number of dual nationalities, Argentinian, French, and German, and that's uh, what we know so far. In terms of the delay, um, here's what John Kirby had to say in Washington at the White House. The reason why there's been a little bit of a delay because there was a, um, a difference of a view, if, if you might, uh, over the, the list and the fact that mothers were not originally going to be allowed to come out with their children. Now, that's been resolved. So it really had to do with the, the who. That's a problem that we saw on the second day of this pause as well. A similar delay, again, apparently with differences over whether or not um, Hamas was following the stipulated deal to not release children without their parents. Um, also happening, of course, now that the Israeli hostages are back on here. It's been four days, but it feels almost ritualistic uh, at this point, is the then the release of Palestinian detainees who've been held in Israeli jails, three women and the rest, uh, children, teenagers, minors under the age of 19, released here in occupied East Jerusalem and, of course, in the occupied West Bank, where you would be seeing um, scenes of, of families uh, held long apart, reuniting uh, with, this, uh, with this latest fourth day uh, of extraordinary exchanges taking place. Uh, a fourth day of extraordinary exchanges, as you say, uh, Margaret, and, and now uh, an extension. Uh, what is the latest on the two-day extension of the truce between Israel and Hamas? 
Uh, we've been hearing reports all day from Egypt that they were close on this, um, and and there were indications from both sides that, that Hamas was pursuing an extension, and Israel has said, and in fact, in, within the framework of that four-day pause, there was always room for an extension of the truce. Um, Israel saying that for every ten hostages released, uh, Israel would be willing to pause for another day. That does seem to be happening now. Qatar uh, made that announcement a few hours ago. Um, the words of the agreement in terms of uh, uh, what Hamas is saying on social media is that the, the deal will follow the same rules of the, of the first four days. So that should mean that you will also continue to see much needed aid um, flowing into Gaza in greater amounts than we've seen so far. Um, aid agencies are saying it's really impossible to overstate the, the level of the need there, especially now with the weather turning, heavy rains, cold. Um, you're starting to see uh, reports of what people have been able to do with this pause as well. Civil kind of defense organizations going around into areas where they haven't been able to reach, still pulling bodies out from under the rubble and of course there's the human toll um, the uh, Palestinian authorities the Hamas authorities in the Gaza Strip and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank say that the number of Palestinians killed in Gaza is now over 14,000 and you'll remember those harrowing images of people burying their dead in mass graves a lot of people haven't had the chance to say the goodbye or even to have a pause so that's something that's going to be very important as well and of course it's going to increase the pressure on Israel from the international community to keep the, the truce going, to keep the pause open, to potentially move towards a more permanent uh, ceasefire. But it has to be said that Israel has remained quite bullish on this front. We saw the Israeli Prime Minister yesterday in Gaza, in northern Gaza, visiting Israeli troops, insisting that once the pause is over, uh, Israel will resume with full force. And we've also had the Israeli Defense Minister today saying that when the fighting is going, it resumes. See, this is what he was saying to Israeli troops. It's going to be much harder, much heavier, and it's going to take place throughout the Gaza Strip. Margaret, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Margaret Evans in Jerusalem. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.